0: Welcome to FemTech Focus Podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with FemTech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today we interview Dr. Andrea Lucas, who is the OBGYN and the Chief Medical Officer of Health Decisions. Dr. Lucas advises health decisions on the development and implementation of research protocols and communications to the FDA. Dr. Lucas has conducted and overseen more than 80 clinical trials of investigational women's health products over the last 10 years. She has published dozens of high-profile women's health research papers. She also founded the Carolina Women's Research and Wellness Center, co-founded and served as the director of gynecology at Duke University, and founded the OBGen Alliance, an online network of over 8,000 OBGYN physicians in the United States. Dr. Lucas is obviously very experienced and such an asset to the femtech community. Her position as chief medical officer also reminds me of how important it is for each femtech company to have a chief medical officer, or at least an ob as an active advisor. I'm so grateful to have Dr. Julie Hakeem and my co-founder as our chief medical officer. If you are a femtech startup that needs a doctor to advise you, please join our virtual network, which has dozens of available mentors. You can join through our website, femtechfocus.org. Enjoy the interview. Hey, Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am very excited to have you on today. Now, we've talked several times on the phone, and uh, you definitely know what's up in Femtech. So excited to get your opinion on the record today.
1: Well, it's a privilege for you, for me to be here. Thank you.
0: <laughs> it is my privilege. It is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, you know, our listeners love to hear more about the guests' background because we normally don't, you know, say in kindergarten, we want to work in femtech. And so tell us a little bit more about your personal story. Where are you from? What did you study? And how did you end up here?
1: So I have more than one job. I'm a chief medical officer for a company, Health Decisions, a clinical research organization focused on women's health. Um, a CRO or clinical research organization provides support for pharmaceutical companies or diagnostic companies to help run clinical trials. Health decisions is unique in that we only focus on women's health. I am an OBGYN. I've worked for over 25 years in, in, in the clinic and research. Um, I trained at both Duke and UNC. Uh, After my training, I worked at Duke um, as an attending. In medical school, I got two degrees. I got an MD and master's in biostatistics, so I'm a little nerdy, as you are, given you're a geneticist. (laughs) after being in academics for 10 years, I kind of wanted more autonomy. I had a, mm. a, small, fam, a th- small family, so I, I formed a clinical research company and GYN clinic. Um, and then after being in, I had a private practice, health decisions approached me, and I've been with them for um, three years.
0: Wow. You have had a so many hats that you have worn. <laughs> so many hats. So did you know, like right from college that you wanted to be a medical doctor? And did you know you wanted to be an OBGYN?
1: I didn't know I wanted to be an OBGYN, but my father was a doctor. So I did. I, I'm a little corny. My dad kind of considered it a privilege to be a physician. And I feel the same way. Yeah. I, I feel like it's a privilege to take care of, of, of women.
0: Yeah. Did you grow up in the North Carolina area?
1: I did. I grew up in Asheville, so in the mountains.
0: I've heard of Asheville. Many people told me I'm going to like it there. So I heard yes. it's pretty cool. Um, it is. It's it's awesome. So you go to med school. You're gonna you're gonna go into women's health. And you know, I always find it fascinating when I meet MDs that then also do research. So, um, you know, what were some of the research questions that you were
1: investigating? So at Duke you have to do a year of research that's built into the Mm. curriculum. And I was drawn in infectious disease. Actually, I studied with a world-renowned infectious disease uh, man, David Durack, uh, um, and co-authored a paper uh, on uh, a condition called um, endocarditis um, and built a database uh, uh, that led to kind of uh, the Duke – Uh, criteria for endocarditis, which is one of the reasons why I studied biostatistics. Wow.
0: Wow. And and endoconditis. I do not know what that is actually. What is that?
1: (laughs) Infective endocarditis. It's an infection in the uh, the heart valve.
0: Okay. Got it. Got it. Interesting. Wow. Really? You've, you have been around the human body, all the different all the different things, heart valves, <laughs> uteruses, all the things. Wow. Um, and then I am really excited to talk to you today about your experience in clinical trials. So when was the first time you've ever worked in a clinical trial setting?
1: Um, in residency. So I did. I was at Duke medical school, then did residency at UNC Mm -hmm. and worked with John Thorpe, who is still at UNC, um, doing research with fetal fibronectin, which is still available today and preterm labor.
0: Um,
1: And he he was the principal investigator, but I did some um, statistical analysis uh, uh, for him.
0: What is fetal fibronectin?
1: Um, (laughs) I promise everyone I I am smart, (laughs) but there's so
0: much left to know in the world. So I'm going (laughs) to try my best to pronounce these things.
1: (laughs) It's a protein that can be released, um, in pre, in preterm labor Uh that can help predict if a woman is going to deliver early (gasps) or not.
0: Whoa. Okay. So what was your clinical trial like? Was your clinical trial like showing that that was the case, or were you like trying to do something else with that with that phenomenon?
1: I looked at the database that they prospectively collected and showed that if if you did an exam, um, that could show that it was falsely positive. So you shouldn't do an exam before you collected data to to, to show that it was positive or negative.
0: Interesting and. You know, I know for myself, you know, I was a researcher, geneticist in the laboratory, and I love science. I really do. But I felt like the things I was working on may not actually help people for 20 years, if ever, right? Like hopefully somebody somewhere finds my paper and they connect it to something else and it cures cancer. I don't know, right? Did you feel like when you were working in a clinical trial that you had like a faster impact on people's lives or... Um, you know, was there something that drew you to that more than having like a, a private practice at first at that point?
1: Um, I think it just made me, it just inspired me to continue doing clinical research. So then soon after I finished my residency, I went to Duke and I just enjoyed the, the science aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I got to work with uh, an individual, Andra James, at Duke, and then we formalized a women's hemostasis and thrombosis clinic, and I started becoming an expert in heavy menstrual bleeding. Okay. So women that have bleeding disorders have heavy menstrual bleeding, and women that have clotting disorders are often on anticoagulation medications and have heavy menstrual bleeding. So that
0: makes
1: sense. Yeah. So I started learning a lot about the menstrual blood loss and medications that can can control blood loss. Wow.
0: So is this a huge, is this like a big issue that we don't know about? That's usually the theme of the show is like, this is a giant issue. Millions of women are suffering and like we've never heard about it. So what about this, the like heavy blood loss and heavy menstruation? Is that like a really big issue
1: for women? Very much so. It, it, it impacts 25, 30% of women worldwide, and there are few remedies. Um, there are many devices that can be used to okay. treat heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, there are several medications that have recently been approved um, for the condition as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Would one of the solutions be to take a birth control that stops you from having a period? Is that something you'd recommend?
1: Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. many birth control pills can be used for for the condition
0: yeah what kind of devices are you talking about iud's
1: um yes some iud's uh, for instance like the marina um can, is one of the few iud's that's approved for the treatment of heavy menstrual bleeding that oh. want to use um contra- intrauterine contraception
0: interesting how does a woman know if she has heavy menstrual bleeding versus average because I feel like I don't necessarily talk about like the volume of my menstrual blood with pretty much anyone. So how does a woman know if she, she's average or above average?
1: know that's a great question. Um, some women don't know because their mom might've had the same problem. Yeah. Use. They learn from their mom and they don't know. Uh-huh. Um, I one time had a woman, referred to me because she was very anemic and I walk in and she's asleep, you know, and I kind of awaken her. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she, she didn't think she had heavy menstrual bleeding and she, but you know, she's like, yeah, I can fall asleep at any time. And I kind of chuckled um, and I said, that's because you're so anemic. Yeah. And it's your body's way of resting. Wow. But, um, there are, there are ways to know there's yeah. a normal, you know, normally a period lasts only four days um, you know, and there, but for clinical trials, um, there's an objective way in which you measure menstrual blood loss. Oh, really? Um, and, yep, you, you they're, they're standard pads and tampons. And at, at, at my clinical research center, we actually give women sanitary products, and they have to take them home, use them, and then there's a way, a standard bag and collection that they have to do then yeah. they bring them back and they we send it to a lab yeah and they, they have to we then it's quantified and there's an actual number that comes back so normally you only have 40 milliliters of blood in an entire period mm-hmm. um and if it's more than 80 that's objectively heavy menstrual bleeding
0: got it got it does wow all right i'm getting this now i'm like and I, I, I also know 40 milliliters from the laboratory, so I can actually start to visualize that volume. Um,
1: yeah. Which uh, is actually low volume. So, the menstrual, yeah. you know, if you think about that, a lot of the menstrual period is not actual blood, it's transudate or proteins or other material.
0: And that's what fills up the 40 mils, or the 40 mils is the actual blood, and there's other like volume of other
1: stuff. Yeah, 40 milliliters is actual blood. Okay, so other, got it. So there's other stuff. Other
0: stuff, yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, we have a lot of different types of listeners. We have um, my friends up in New Hampshire that are farmers. We have people from Israel and all over, like all different backgrounds. So I don't want to assume anyone obviously knows what a clinical trial is or why one would need it. So can you please break down to for us, like, what – you know, kind of product requires a clinical trial and why?
1: Sure. Um, you want me to use a device? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's look at a device. Like I'm going to present this fall on a device called the Sonata. The, that is a, a device that treats fibroids via the vagina and cervix. And there's a device that goes in the cavity that then uses radio frequency energy to ablate a fibroid. Whoa! Um, and it, so it's for women that have heavy menstrual bleeding and it ablates a fibroid. So the first thing you do in a clinical trial is you, you give a woman a consent form that outlines everything involved in a clinical study And it's on a a reading level of a a sixth, a sixth grader. So it's easy Mm -hmm. to understand. She is given time to read that thoroughly, understand what's involved and she signs it. Then there's often blood work. You might do a pap smear, an ultrasound. If if it's for heavy menstrual bleeding and fibroids to make sure she has a type of fibroid that would qualify, Um, then she might be brought back. Additional testing is done. For instance, in that case, she might an an endometrial biopsy is done to make sure the lining of the uterus is normal. If she meets all the inclusion and exclusion criteria that's been predefined, Uh um, then she would undergo the procedure. And then uh, the study. This study in particular was over three years. Wow. it's, it's looked at how much her bleeding improved.
0: Wow, over three years. And, you know, we're hearing a lot now during the time of COVID and trying to get this vaccine about, you know, what phase of clinical trial the vaccine is in. So um, can you tell us about how many phases there are and what's the difference?
1: Absolutely. So the, so the Sonata trial was a phase three study. So there are four phases, phases. phase one, phase one is done in healthy volunteers. So they're just looking at how the, the medication or, uh, usually let's talk medication, how it might impact, um, titers, you know, what side effects there might be. It's, it's not in the disease of interest. It's a healthy volunteer phase two. It's usually going to be in the disease of interest. Mm-hmm. And they're going to look at a range of doses, perhaps, and again, side effects and safety. Mm-hmm. And then phase three, it tends to be the disease of interest. They probably know the dose, and it's going to be a large scale, and it's going to tend to be how they and in- how they think that medication will be used. Mm-hmm. And it'll likely reflect the label um, of the drug. And then phase four is when a medication has already been approved and they might be looking at some other, uh, perhaps some other way in which it might be used.
0: Wow. So on average for, and this might be different for medicine versus device. I don't know, but tell me how long does this usually take to get through all three clinical trials so that it can get to market? How long does that take?
1: Oh, so, so many years. So I've worked with a company, I'll use a, a real company, AbV. They have a drug which is a remarkable drug that's been approved for both endometriosis and uterine fibroids called Oralissa and Orion. And I got to do their phase one studies, which was 10 years ago. Oh my gosh. So, is it, it available
0: yet to women?
1: Yeah. Yes. Okay. So it's, it's called Oralissa uh-huh. for endometriosis and Orion for heavy menstrual bleeding mm-hmm. associated with fibroids.
0: And so is it like a five-year thing to get through all these trials? Is it eight years or? Ten,
1: ten. Ten. For five boards? Wow. A little less less for the, and they went for endometriosis first. And I think it's been on the market for about two years for, for endometriosis.
0: Wow. Is this average for like all countries or is this like the U.S.
1: average? I think it's tougher in the U.S. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting, but sometimes sometimes a drug can be um, kind of ex- have an accelerated path. Mm-hmm. I did a lot with a company for a drug called Lysteta, which is a drug for heavy menstrual bleeding. Okay, um, it's it had been around worldwide for a long time, um, and that was approved in probably. I think it took maybe four or five years. So it was,
0: it was quicker. Wow. That's the fast pace. This is four or
1: five years. Wow. But now the vaccines for COVID that will be more accelerated. Yes,
0: of course. Of course. I mean, the whole world is trying to do it right. You're combining forces. So, um, uh, how much does that cost on average? You think to do a 10 year study, people got to get paid, things got to get made. Like how much is this costing people?
1: I don't even want to, I'd have to get back to you on that one more than, more than I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, well, you know, we are on the femtech focus podcast and I think all of this is incredibly relevant to us and you keep name dropping all of these drugs and devices for women, which is awesome. (laughs) You obviously have your finger on the pulse, but, um, what I'm curious about is, some of the like, you know, information that I may not be able to find on the internet that you might know because you're in the trenches. What's your experience been like in specifically trying to get women's medication or women's medical devices to market? Do you notice that there's like some barriers that we have that, you know, a uh, erectile dysfunction drug doesn't have or a, you know, heart valve med device doesn't have? Like, is there anything that we should know that's kind of unique to to women's health devices getting approved?
1: Well, I do think it's, you know, historically, it's always been harder and women have not been included in the clinical trials until more recently. Wow, Um, I think it was 1993 that the NIH passed what's called the Revitalization Act and that was when they kind of established guidelines that women and minorities needed to be included in clinical trials and Uh and, you know that's a little you know it's what 30 years ago and prior to that it was mostly men that were included in clinical trials Mm -hmm. um so it's still a little bit slanted towards, towards men.
0: Yeah. We're, um, we're essentially, so the, the result of that is that medications and devices are kind of uh, tweaked for a white male's health. And then we're just assuming right. it's going to fit for not white and not male people as well, but usually right. doesn't always, you know, just translate
1: easily like that. Right. Yeah. Right. But there, I think, you know, at health decisions, you know, we're, we're only focused on women's health. And Mm -hmm. um, for instance, we have been the coordinating center for um, the contraceptive clinical trial network. And I think that's kind of the leading um, network for contraception. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's been phenomenal. You know, we're working on contraceptive gels that men can use nothing's oh, been approved yet but that you know that's been um phenomenal yeah um, clint dart is the principal investigator for that for health decisions um sarah godfrey is the program director so that's been wonderful um we're working with a company um that's led by women uh for gels for sexual arousal Mm -hmm. so that's another area that i think hasn't been um as wonderful for women as it has been for men yeah. and you know you and I have, have talked before that's not my dog I want to go on record for saying that um sorry he's very upset that
0: sexual wellness is not being innovated
1: uh oh, is that it <laughs> um but there's there are companies that are leading the way. You know, there's a gel that can increase blood flow to genital tissue that is going to be that's being developed for female sexual arousal disorder, which will be wonderful if approved. Um, it'll likely uh, it'll likely improve the arousal of women that don't even have arousal disorder. So that'll be wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, that I. Sorry. Go ahead. For instance, one of the medications like Addy that was approved, you know, initially there was truly a contraindication that a woman could not drink and take that medication. And in the approval of that drug, you know, this didn't happen to men. They had women drink large amounts of alcohol and take the medication. And then women felt woozy. What? And so that, you know... Yeah, they had a, they had, as part of the approval approval process, they made women take large amounts of alcohol and the medication <laughs> and they felt woozy. So subsequently, <laughs> they've now, they've not, they've taken the contraindication away and just made it a black box warning. Wow. So it, it's frustrating. It's frustrating to see the discrepancy in some of the medications for women versus yes.
0: men. Yes. And, um, what I've heard, and tell me if this is true, maybe it's just rumor, maybe just gossip, right? That the FDA requires like new medicine or new devices for women to be extremely, you know, better than what's on the market. And if it's not, if it's just like on par with what's on the market, then the FDA isn't as inclined to approve of it compared to devices or drugs for men do you notice that too like is it harder to convince FDA to approve of women's devices
1: mm, i don't know if that's true like for and i'm probably most familiar with like endometrial ablation devices so mm-hmm. the so women in terms of heavy menstrual bleeding there are devices that can ablate or destroy the lining of the uterus um and I was involved with a, a study by AGIA which did, is approved, which uses a, a water vapor in the cavity, and it had very good success. And there are a number of individual ablation devices okay. available. So I know I don't know that that's true.
0: All right, got it. And what about um, like codes to get it approved for re- insurance reimbursement? Because I know there's some issues with... Uh, insurance not seeing women's sexual wellness as a medical issue right and so if you're spending 500 million dollars in 10 years to create the sexual wellness lotion for women but in the end of the day there's no code to bill it to insurance like investors may not invest in that because the business model is kind of broken up what's your experience been around that do you see that sexual wellness isn't necessarily approved as often for insurance and what about other diseases
1: well Insurance companies are always a challenge. Yeah. Um, so that might be beyond the scope of my knowledge too. I mean, that <laughs> is something you're, I'm constantly learning as a provider and coding. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's an ongoing issue for for insurance companies.
0: Have you ever had to go down the route of like petitioning for a new code to be made so that your device or drug was re like could be billed
1: uh no but i know of experts that do that for a living wow never, like
0: their whole yeah, job I, is to do that
1: yes whoa
0: yeah. whoa yeah because i feel like we're still learning so much more more about the women's health and so like i wouldn't be surprised if we were still discovering new disorders or we're realizing that something we kind of categorized as I don't know, endometriosis, but turns out there's actually two types, right? And so like they may need to be billed differently. And so that's interesting. There's people's, their whole job is to kind of code that stuff. Yes. Wow. Um, What are some of the exciting things you're working on right now? At, uh, health decisions in terms of, you know, certain illnesses that you're, uh, you're working on for women.
1: Well, so I mentioned the contraceptive network Mm -hmm. work so all of those clinical studies i mentioned the um the gel to increase flow to the genital tissue um Mm -hmm. we're working on diagnostics for colon cancer um diagnostics for the flu um uh bacterial vaginosis treatment uh we have a, a clinical trial with uh infertility group um a number of different things so
0: that is wow. that is exciting wow very diverse so interesting um well what do you uh see as the future of you know clinical trials for for women's health do you think that it's you know being taken care of or is there still lots of opportunity for people to you know get into into this business of clinical trials for women
1: you know i think it's only getting better for women, mm-hmm. for women's health. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunities, um, in particular for fibroids and endometriosis and contraception and migraines. I think there are a lot of companies that um, have focused on women's health. Um, there's always room for improvement. Um, you know, and as, as I was thinking about. Talking with you today, um, you know, I thought of someone I I had met, Lynn Seeley, who had not yet formed a company, but she's the CEO at a company, Myovant, um, that's looking at a product for both endometriosis and uh, heavy menstrual bleeding associated with fibroids. And it's not through health decisions, but I'm working with their company at my research center. Um, and they have kind of partnered with a company that has an app called flow, which mm-hmm. tracks, uh, menstrual bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's the most common one. I mean, when I see women, you know, there are a lot of, of apps that can track menstrual bleeding, but, um, that, that does seem to be the most, the most popular one. So mm-hmm. it is, it's exciting to see. You know, I'm doing research with this company, you know, and I have, they've partnered, it's it's not the one used in the clinical trials, um, but they're forward thinking in in the fact that they're they're impacting uh, and using or or developing a drug that will lessen a woman's menstrual flow. And they've partnered with a, you know, a, a very popular app in which women are already using it to track their periods.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I see the future of healthcare as really combining the consumer taking control of their health by having at home like apps or devices with the help of their, you know, physician that they may only get to see for a few minutes at a time every few weeks. But when you combine those forces, I feel like um, our health can be exponentially improved when you're empowering that consumer as well. And these apps could potentially be one of those ways, right?
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, you know, we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast and they are chomping at the bit to figure out what should they be working on? What needs innovating, right? Cause they don't want to reinvent something that's already solved. So what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Mm, that's a
1: good question. I still think sexual health. Mm. I mean, I think That's a huge one that, um, isn't addressed adequately. Um, I think migraines, uh, I think weight loss, uh, I think anxiety and depression.
0: Those are all really good. I actually want to dive into them a little bit. (laughs) So when you say (laughs) sexual health, are you talking about like, have women orgasm better or are you talking about like comfortable sex or sex after menopause? I'm going to say all of it. I think
1: women still, (laughs) you know, I think still women have, have difficulty even, so, I mean, some women don't, some women, you know, can come in and talk about everything, but I think a lot, that's the minority. I think a lot of women have trouble talking about it, even with a provider. Mm. You know, I often have to bring it up with women. It's not often that women come to me and, and, and bring it up themselves. Um, and, and it's, it's hard to get a woman comfortable talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the providers within my practice, um, so not everyone's comfortable bringing it up. Oh. And, and it's an important area that I think can bring, can benefit a woman's life if, yeah, it, yep. if it's positive. Yeah, yeah.
0: So what I hear from you is that we're, we're kind of at like level one of we need to start having a community discussion about sexual wellness um, before we're even like, you know, talking about what solutions need to exist. Uh, and then I really loved what you said. Well, I'm interested to hear, why did you say migraines, weight loss, and anxiety? Do those affect women differently or disproportionately than men? They do.
1: They do. Um, well, no, weight. Uh, wait. Migraines do. Depression does. Weights and... To be honest with you, I'm not sure about that. Okay, yeah, off the top of my head. I mean, I see women. You know, two thirds of the American population is over overweight. Mm-hmm. Um. So, um.
0: Is if, it it's, is it true or is a myth that uh, it's harder for women to lose weight compared to men? Well.
1: Even I see only women, I'm going to say, it's, I'm going to say it's
0: true. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, on this show, I have brought up several myths and the guest is like, yeah, that's not true. Like <laughs> that's an old wives tale. So sometimes I ask, and I'm like, I don't know. This is what I've been walking around thinking. So, all right. But migraines affecting women differently. So, or disproportionately, is that, do we know That's any true. like science behind that? Like, why women have more migraines than men do, or we're just like, huh, interesting? No,
1: I'm sure. I'm sure it probably is known why, but yeah. I don't know why. Interesting. But I bet you we do know why. Wow.
0: Well, you know, listeners, again, femtech is not just periods and you know breasts and uteruses. It is also things that disproportionately or differently affect women. So migraines and anxiety, super interesting. And, you know, our last question for you is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole right now needs to, needs the most right now in order to be successful? Like where, where we're at, what do you think we need in order to keep moving forward?
1: Well, I still think probably more awareness. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, thank. Thankfully, Danielle was the one who highlighted your wonderful podcast to me. So I am going to be more of a promoter of you and fintech. Um, but I don't think there's enough awareness of fintech. Yeah. yeah. So anything I can do moving forward to help you, I want you to, to let me know.
0: Thank you. Oh my goodness. Well, we're we're nothing without our guests. So. Um, my listeners know I'm pretty much learning on the fly with y'all. So it's all because of your thought leadership, um, you know, and your, and especially you, you, you've been in the trenches for a long time. You've brought a lot of devices and drugs to market and have literally touched millions of women's lives and improved them. So thank you so much for the work you've done.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Hmm.
0: Um, well, this has been such an amazing conversation, and I thank you so much for your time today. You are a busy woman, and I'm glad we were able to snag some some minutes with you.
1: Sure, thank you,
0: Brittany. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Andrea Lucas, who is the OBGYN and the Chief Medical Officer of Health Decisions. Health Decisions is such a fantastic organization. They've supported over 150 studies in women's health. Incredible. This episode was sponsored by Dare Bioscience, a publicly traded company. Dare Bioscience is a biopharmaceutical company committed to the advancement of innovation products for women's health. At DARE, they understand women need and want better therapeutic options in areas ranging from birth control to fertility to sexual and vaginal health. To learn more about DARE's full portfolio of women's health product candidates and their mission to deliver differential therapies for women, please visit darebioscience.com. To the listeners out there, I'm so glad you're tuned in and soaking up this knowledge Please help Femtech Focus keep up with the podcast because we are a nonprofit organization and subscribing to the show and donating on our website is some of the ways that you can give back to us as we continue to give back to you and the women's health community. To stay up to date on Femtech news and events, subscribe to our newsletter and join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org. There are two outstanding Femtech events happening this week that you should definitely attend. They're both on Thursday, November 5th. The first is Femtech Focus and the Guild are hosting a panel on fundraising and Femtech at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. We'll cover fundraising from angels, VCs, and grants from three experts who fundraised a lot from all three categories. Register for this event through our website. The second event is with Portfolia at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Portfolia is hosting a panel on the most important trends in women's health and where women's venture dollars can make a difference. You can register for their event at Portfolia.co. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.